Again, thanks for joining us today. If this is a first conference for you, then a special welcome. We're glad to see you. And the announcement that was just given to me concerned a prayer meeting in the room just down to the hall at 6.30 in view of the meeting tonight. And if our brethren and sisters could join us, whoever is able to, to pray for the gospel and for the ministry of the Word of God, that God will graciously draw near. We're thankful for those that came last night, and we trust that others will join us on this Saturday night for the preaching of the gospel. Let's just take a moment to pray before we read from God's Word. Father, we thank Thee again today for Thy beloved Son. Were it not for the Lord Jesus, we would have no reason to be together. We would never have known one another. We would never have experienced this wonderful peace that we've just been able to sing of. And so we give thanks that we have come to know the Lord Jesus. Heaven's love has been manifested in a very, very gracious, wonderful way. When the fullness of the time was come, God sent forth his Son. And we're thankful, Father, that when he came, he came not to condemn, but he came to be the Savior for the entire world. None need perish, all may come. And tonight we thank thee, or today we give thanks for every individual here that has come to know the Lord Jesus, to revel in thy grace, to appreciate the riches of all that's found in him. And we would just pray that thou wilt continue to minister to our hearts. We thank thee for the opening of thy word this morning, for giving our brother help, as we have been able to read these delightful words. And we would just pray that the Spirit of God will continue to teach us, to instruct us, to encourage us, to guide us and lead us into all truth, that our lives will be more and more conformed to the image of thy beloved Son. We are living in difficult days. There are many trials. There are many difficulties. There are saints here that are suffering. There are saints that would love to be here that are not because they too are suffering. And so, Father, we just pray that in these difficult days that thy presence will be real, that the purposes of God will be realized, that we might learn in the school of God, and that we might just abide in thy love. So give us help, Lord, we pray. As we open up thy word, we acknowledge our need of thee, and just pray that thy voice will be heard, and the people of God encouraged, and Christ magnified as we give thanks in our Savior's name. Amen. Let's read in the Gospel of John, chapter 13. I might as well tell you, I'm enjoying Vancouver weather. Um, just heard today that our brethren in Gander are, are, are battling. They have a conference like this, and they're battling snow and wind and whatever, cold. Uh, been there, done that, but um, nice to be in Vancouver. And thankful for good weather for a good weekend. John 13, and we'll look at verse number 33. Of course, we're looking at some of the final words of the Lord Jesus. He's drawn alongside of his beloved disciples. Judas, the betrayer, is gone. There's only 11 of them now remaining. And yet in these, in these wonderful chapters, we know them as the upper room, ministry. The Lord is unveiling, revealing his heart. So intimate, so precious. And so he speaks to them, and in John 13... Verse 33, he says, Little children, dear children, yet a little while I am with you. Ye shall seek me, and as I said unto the Jews, whither I go, ye cannot come. 
Verse 36, Simon Peter said unto him, Lord, whither goest thou? Jesus answered him, Whither I go, thou canst not follow me now, but thou shalt follow me afterwards. Peter said unto him, Lord, why cannot I follow thee now? I will lay down my life for thy sake. Jesus answered him, Wilt thou lay down thy life for my sake? Verily, verily, I say unto thee, The cock shall not crow till thou hast denied me thrice. Let not your heart be troubled. Ye believe in God, believe also in me. In my Father's house are many mansions, many abodes. If it were not so, I would have told you. I go to prepare a place for you, and if I go and prepare a place for you, I will come again and receive you unto myself, that where I am, there ye may be also. Chapter 15, verse 1. Could be that they're walking now. Uh, there's a variety of, of uh, opinions on that. You'll notice in the end of verse uh, at the end of the chapter 14, he says, Arise, let us go hence. So it could well be that they're still in the upper room or they might have left and they might have been walking maybe even through vineyards. But whatever the case, 15 and verse 1, I am the true vine, and my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he taketh away, and every branch that beareth fruit, he purgeth it, he cleanseth it, that it may bring forth much more fruit. Now you're clean through the word which I have spoken unto you. Abide in me and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit of itself except it abide in the vine, no more can ye except ye abide in me. I am the vine, ye are the branches. He that abideth in me and I in him. The same bringeth forth much fruit. For without me ye can do nothing. Now chapter 16. And the very last verse, verse number 33. These things, have I, these things I have spoken unto you, that in me ye might have peace. In the world ye shall have tribulation, but be of good cheer. I have overcome the world. Chapter 17 now, and verse number 11. He's praying to his father, and now I am no more in the world, but these, these, these disciples, these are in the world, and I come to thee. Holy Father, keep through thine own name those whom thou hast given me, that they may be one as we are. While I was with them in the world, I kept them in thy name. Those that thou gavest me I have kept, and none of them is lost but the son of perdition, that the scripture might be fulfilled. And now come I to thee, and these things I speak in the world, that they might have my joy fulfilled in themselves. Just verse 24. Father, I will that they also whom thou hast given me be with me where I am, that they may behold my glory which thou hast given me, for thou lovest me before the foundation of the world. Now one final portion in 1 Peter chapter 3. 1 Peter chapter 4, I'm sorry, 1 Peter chapter 4, and verse number 12. Peter was one of the ones who was in that upper room who heard the words that we have just been reading. And now he writes in chapter 4, verse 12, Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial, which is to try you, as though some strange thing happened unto you. But rejoice, inasmuch as ye are partakers of Christ's sufferings, that when his glory shall be revealed, ye may be glad also with exceeding joy. I've been trying to spend some time in the upper room. Uh, 
at least in the upper room atmosphere. Uh, last weekend, I was able to be at the Mount Sterling Bible readings, and they were on chapters 14, 15, 16, and 17 of the Gospel of John, the upper room experience. Those chapters bring before us some of his final words to his own before the cross. There's not a whole lot said to them after they leave the upper room. He speaks to his father, just a few references, personal references to various individuals, but not a whole lot. So these are, these are final words. We notice that these words are marked by a very, very tender affection. There, there, there is timely truth given to them. And as we just sit along with those disciples and listen to the Lord Jesus, we're just able to breathe a little, a little of heaven's atmosphere. Good place to be. But alongside of that, there was a sense that those 72 to 96 hours before the cross and after the cross, they included what was really unexpected. They were to include the unwanted, and they would involve the unimaginable. Because you see, when, when you look at the, at the scriptures and you just follow the account here, it, it's clear that the disciples were expecting the kingdom of God to be near. It was going to be a kingdom of power, of glory, of dominion, of majesty and might. It's going to be a thrilling time. And, and they, they were going to be a part of it. They, they were really, really expecting that. It wasn't that they were going to be a kind of on the periphery, just on the edge. No, they were going to be vital agents in this glorious kingdom. And so on the way to the upper room, Luke 22, they had been talking about who was going to be the greatest. Imagine, who's going to be the greatest in that kingdom? Now, it wasn't just kind of friendly banter. It wasn't just kind of a nice talk. No, Luke says there was strife strife. There was, there was a competitive edge. There was sharp confrontation, strife. And we're not really told who was the loudest. You, you know, you'd think that Peter was likely the, the one that said, well, I'm going to be number one. But of course, you recall that James and John were known as the, as the sons of thunder. So maybe their voices prevailed, whatever the case. Uh, there, 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 there was strife in these disciples as they were walking to the upper room as to who was going to be the greatest in the kingdom of God. And you will recall, and God bless our mothers, but you will recall that James and John's mother had gone to the Lord previously and said, uh, Lord, look, I want to ask a request of you. You know my boys? They're good boys. James is a good man. John is a good man. I just want to ask you, it would be really nice if, James could be on one side of your, of your throne of, in your kingdom and John on the other. Because my boys, they deserve that. So that's the backdrop. And as they were moving along, there, there was this expectation. The kingdom was just about there. This is going to be wonderful. But now everything is turned upside down. And so what I want to speak to you today and this time is going to go very quickly, but I, I just want to speak, just touch some of the surfaces of heaven's provision when things don't make sense. Maybe you're there right now. Maybe things don't make sense in your life as a believer. Maybe what you anticipated and what you thought and what you expected hasn't come. 
And as we look at John chapter 14, the Lord says, let not your heart be troubled, because they were troubled. A, 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 a heaviness, a heaviness had settled on their very souls. There was an oppressive, spirit, oppressive atmosphere, because you see, there were things that were being done that had never been done before. They had watched with amazement as the Lord got up from the table. He laid aside his garments, and he took a basin of water, and he had actually washed their feet. He had never done that before. What was going on? He talked about a betrayer. That could never happen, but he said there's going to be a betrayer. He had mentioned Satan's sieve. Now, what in the world was that all about? He had mentioned that one of, one of them was going to deny him. And um, they had watched as Judas had gotten up and left. And they couldn't make heads or tails out of it all. All of this had unsettled them. They, they were left with troubled hearts, with unsettled spirits, with a gripping fear, with confused minds. It's not what they expe expected. Simply put, it didn't make sense. This was not the kingdom. This was something else. What does it all mean? You know, brothers and sisters, their experience then sometimes becomes our experience now. The early joys of salvation sometimes hit a bump, don't they? The steady following and obedience is challenged. The, the, the confidence that is so sure and so steadfast and so strong is undermined and we begin to wonder. Discouragement sets in, both in ourselves and with, with, actually with others. And this dynamic, wonderful Christian life, living with passion, devolves into living with question marks. Is it worth it all? Can I survive? Does God know what he's doing? Am I living a deluded hope? What's the point of going on anyway? You know, sad to say, uh, this is our experience many times. Sometimes the learning curve is, is pretty steep, isn't it? And yet in the midst of all of these question marks, of all these uncertainties, the Lord Jesus drew so near to them with these, these tender words. He gave them the assurance of his presence. Uh, he conveyed to them the, 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 the tender care of his father. And he made them aware that he was going to give them peace. He told them they're, in the world they're going to have tribulation. But he, he, he guaranteed them, he assured them, I will never leave you, I will never forsake you, I'll be with you. And I will give you my peace. So I want to speak just very simply about three things. And I likely only get to the first. But I want to look at, first of all, the activity in the garden. That's John 15. And I want to look at the access to his presence in John 14. And then, of course, there's the assurance of our preservation. That's John 17. The activity in the garden. The husbandman's work. The trimming, the lifting, the cleansing of the vine, of the branches. The activity in the garden. The access to his presence and the assurance of our preservation. You know, we're, we're, living, in a, we're living in a very privileged part of the world, but... It's kind of a strange age, age, isn't it? At least where we are. 
Arnold Adams, who was a missionary to, to Cuba for many years and then went back to Ontario and was a, a wonderful minister of the, of the gospel and of the word of God. And I'm sure many here, here know Arnold. He's home in heaven now. But I recall Arnold saying, you know, Marv, we are here in North America, we are kittens drowning in cream. We have so much. And despite the fact that we have so much, we're, we're, we're still not satisfied, are we? I'm, I'm talking generally now. Um, we have big houses. We have retirement plans. We have social benefits. We have supermarkets that are filled with all kinds of gourmet food, all kinds of options. And we still want more, don't we? We're just not satisfied. If we're single, we want to be married. If we're married, we want to have the perfect mate. And, and if we have a, a house that's suitable, well, it would be nice to kind of move up. And on the other side, we have some things that we don't want to have. You know, uh, sometimes there's medical concerns, and as you get older, some of you aren't walking as quickly as you used to. And some of us feel our knees, and, you know, it's not nice. Sometimes there's sky-high bills. There, there's, there's separations, there's death, and so on. And we kind of collapse under the burden of it all, and we say, what's going on? So basically, we... We want what we don't have, and we have what we don't want. And in the end, we're, we're, people just aren't happy, are they? That's our world. And sometimes that's our world as believers. We hear about believers in other parts of the, the world, and our brother Baker has told us about being India, where you sit on the, on the ground for hours at a conference, 5,000 of them, and the, and the rice comes tumbling out of the, out of the big hoppers, and... You don't have a whole lot, but boy, they're, 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 there's a joy to them. And that might apply to them out there. But we are convinced, if we're honest, that life is different for us here in North America. We, we, we're convinced that God ex really exists to make our life happy. He is our Father, right? And fathers always want the best for their children. Don't want to have anything bad happen to them. So if he's our father, then we should have a good life. And uh, he is, the Lord Jesus is our Savior. And John chapter 10, I am come, they might have life. They might have it more abundantly. And so we want the abundant life with all the perks. And so we're really convinced that we will be happy if we have full blessings and no trials and yes, endless sunshine. Ah, isn't that great? That's why it's great to be in Vancouver. And no, it's not endless sunshine here, but thank God it's sunshine today. You know what's wrong with that? That's not real life, is it? And that's not real Christian living. In fact, the God that we are dealing with, the God we have come to know, is a, is a suffering God. The one that we have trusted in is a suffering Savior. The writer to the Hebrews says, Consider him, consider him, that endured such contradiction of sinners against himself. And from the get-go, from the very start, he was opposed, he was ridiculed, he was undermined. The strong contradictions, day after day after day, he hit the wave of opposition. An amazing life, isn't it? His birth was questioned. We're not born of fornication, but you are. 
The, the town he grew up in, his hometown was despised. And you remember Nathaniel's words, can there any good thing? Nazareth? Can there any good thing come out of Nazareth? Impossible. You mean he's from there? Well, we'll put a big question over, over that. His hometown was, was despised. His words were twisted. His grace was taken for granted. His miracles stoked fires of opposition. His claims were deemed to be blasphemous. Yes, his death was demanded. His resurrection was denied. His ascension was disregarded. He was betrayed. He was denied. He was abandoned. Not an easy life. Not an easy life. And despite the fact that we know that, let's be honest, we, we, we still question, don't we? We still question God's dealings with us in our lives personally. Why is, why is life so difficult? Why are my prayers not being answered the way I expect them to be? I've tried to honor God. I've tried to please him. I've tried to follow his word. But, boy, it's difficult. Just, it, it just doesn't make sense. I thought it would be like this. But it's like this. It doesn't add up. Perhaps I'm speaking to an audience here, and I don't know a lot of you, but I think a lot of us are there, trying to, trying to get the big picture, trying to understand all that God is. And so, really, there, there's two questions, isn't there? Does God really want me to suffer? Is this normal Christianity? And number two, does God care when I suffer? Or does he just kind of stand back and watch? Because if he is all-powerful, and if he's all-good, and if he's sovereign, why doesn't he rearrange the pieces on the, on the puzzle? Why doesn't he do something that life will be easier? Let me just address those questions very quickly, because time is going. God's plan for every Christian is to suffer. Period. God's plan for, every, for all Christians is to suffer. Let me just give you some, some verses to, to back that up. You recall as Saul was moving down the road and the Lord met him. The, the word to Ananias, the man who was going to go and visit him. He said, um, you go and, and you speak to this man. He's a chosen vessel. I will show him, Paul, I will show him how much he must suffer for my name. It's Acts 9 verse 16. Philippians 1.29, he was writing to a group of Christians in Philippi, and he said, For unto you it is given, it is granted, in the behalf of Christ, not only to believe on him, but also to suffer for his sake. That was to an assembly of believers, just like we are today. Not only to believe in his name, but also to suffer for his sake. Acts chapter 14, verse 22, Paul was confirming the, the believers, and he said, and that we must through much tribulation, many hardships and trials enter into the kingdom of God. And in 1 Thessalonians 3, verses 2 and 3, Paul had sent Timothy to establish the saints and to comfort them concerning their faith, that no man should be moved by these afflictions. For ye yourselves know that we are appointed thereunto. And the verse that we have read in 1 Peter chapter 4 Beloved, think it not strange concerning the fiery trial which is to try you as though some strange thing happened and has come unto you. You see, brothers and sisters, this is, this is normal Christian living. 
Number two, with regard to God's plan that all Christians should suffer, his plan is specific. He, he, he is a hands-on God. Our, our trials are not random. He screens, he screens the trials that come to us. He will not allow us. He will not suffer us to be tested above what we're able. So he screens them. He takes no joy in, in human misery. But having said that, I have to tell you that trials of believers are not evenly distributed. Some believers go through all kinds of trials. Some believers, sometimes their, their road is pretty, seemingly pretty smooth. They're not evenly distributed. But God acts in wisdom and nothing happens by chance. That's why I asked Brother Earl to give out 407. Because I'm looking into the faces of some believers here and I, I want to speak carefully. You have gone through trials that no doubt have been crushing. The wounds that those trials, those deep, deep trials have brought, those wounds are still fresh. You will likely never get over them. You're wondering, what does it all mean? How can I get through that? What we have sung is, is absolutely true. Easy words to sing, hard words to, to, to put into our lives. Every joy and trial falleth from above, traced upon life's dial by the Son of love. We may trust him fully all for us to do. They who trust him wholly find him wholly true. Every joy and trial falleth from above, I don't understand it. It doesn't make sense. But they're traced upon the dials of our lives by the one who loves us. You know, when I think of, of the, the very core of his plan, the core of his plan for us, of his purpose for us, is to rescue us from our sin. I read a statement given or, or stated by, uh, actually by Johnny Erickson Tata, and she said these words, God cares most not about making us comfortable, but teaching us to hate our sins, to grow up in the Spirit, and to love and to know Him. God is not so much interested in making us comfortable, but He's interested in changing us, that we might know Him, that we might become more like Him, that we might rest in, in, in His ways of love. And you know, every sorrow that we taste will one day prove to be the best possible thing in our lives. This is not Disneyland, is it? It's true. And again, just to quote my dear brother, Arnold Adams, he, he often said, you know, God doesn't know a better way of doing anything. His way is perfect. Might not understand it, might not make sense, might not be able to connect the dots. God doesn't know a better way of doing anything. And so here we are along the, the road of life. God cares about you because he himself is a, is a suffering God. And you know, the scriptures are filled with the, with the affirmation of, of his, his mercy. Psalm 103, like as a father pities his children, so the Lord pities them that fear him. For he knows our frame. He remembers that we are dust. The mercy of the Lord is from everlasting to everlasting upon them that fear him. John tells us that Jesus wept. Precious in the sight of the Lord is the death 
of his saints. So what's he doing? Well, he's, he's working, working in the garden of our lives. I, I, I like to think, and my beloved brethren can help me out on this, but I like to think that they could well have been walking in the darkness through maybe some vineyards going toward the garden. Whether that's the case or not, doesn't really matter. But he begins to speak to them and he said, I am the true vine, my father is the husbandman. Every branch in me that beareth not fruit, he takes away. And every branch that beareth fruit, he purges it and cleanseth it. So there are two things that are going on here. Every branch in me that bears not fruit, he takes away. And of course, there's a variety of inter interpretations. We're not in John chapter 15, but some have suggested that he might have been referring to Judas. He's taken away. He's removed. He's gone. Maybe. I like to think that every branch in me that bears not fruit, he, he, he lifts up. Because, and I'm no, I'm no grape grower. I have never worked in a vineyard. But I do know this, and I was just down in, in, in uh, Mount Sterling there in Wisconsin, and along with apple orchards, there were some, there were some vineyards. And of course, you're well aware that there are, there are wires, and the vines are all pulled up so that they rest on top of those wires so they get the full sunshine. They're not touching the earth because vines are easily, easily in contact with the earth. They go, they go downward. And you know, as believers... So easy to become earthbound. They tell me that in vineyards, in, 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 in vineyard work, that there are, there are men or there are individuals that are employed. They're called lifters. And they come along and they just lift up the vine that's been somehow earthbound and he just lifts it up and he puts it back on the wire so that it might bear more fruit. Every branch in me that bears fruit, he purges it and cleanses it. So I would suggest that this involves some pruning. Uh, some trimming, some cutting. Sometimes in our lives, it's exactly what God does. Sometimes it hurts. Sometimes we don't know why he's doing it. Sometimes we don't know exactly the, the full result, but he's doing it, the activity in the garden. Now, last year I started uh, a new career, a new vocation, along with, with preaching. I'm now a farmer. Uh, I, I, I put a big garden, uh, not a big garden, I put three little boxes, three by three, so my total garden, my total farm was 27 square feet. But I was going to have a massive, massive harvest. I got the best tomato plants I could get. I went out and bought uh, miracle Grow. miracle Grow is a good thing, and uh, planted them very carefully and um, let her go. Lots of fertilizer, lots of miracle Grow, lots of water. Sure enough, boy, those, those plants took off. You know what happened? I grew a jungle. Uh, lots of branches. But you know, the tomatoes were only about like that. No, they, they were the miniature tomatoes, but they were miniature, miniature tomatoes. Uh, didn't, well, it was all right. Uh, but I learned, I learned. I learned that I needed to have pruned them, to have cut them off. Those plants, those tomatoes needed more sunlight. They needed more space. I, I was just glad to see them grow. I mean, it would look great, but it affected the fruit. I, I actually worked for a, a wholesale florist during my university years in the summer. And um, one of the things that we did was we took out the annual plants to the various stores. 
uh, in the spring of the year, about this, well, maybe May, May month. Uh, petunias, geraniums, all the annual plants that last a year. And of course, everybody, everybody wants an instant garden. All right? So you want to buy the plants with the geraniums in full bloom, the petunias, you know the color, and there they are, and you put them in, and uh, man, it looks great. Just half hour later, you got instant garden. But I learned something. One of, the, one, of the, one of the men that worked there, he said, Marv, if you want a good garden, if you want good plants, when you put those geraniums in, just take off the flower. I said, well, that's why I'm buying them, for the flower. No, he says, take off the, the, take off the flower, take off the geranium. And he says, what will happen is that those roots will be pushed down. They'll be anchored well. And you will have a garden that will last a long time and you will have healthy plants. You know, brothers and sisters, we want, we want to be instant Christians. We want instant spirituality. We want to have it the easy way, 10-minute Christianity. It doesn't work that way. He is dealing in, in our lives he snips, he cuts, he cleanses, he trims, he prunes, and it hurts. But it's all designed that we might bear fruit and more fruit and much fruit. So I'm going to give you, Mike, because i got four minutes, so I'm going to fast track it here. I want to give you just some of the, the ultimate purposes of the, the gardener's dealings. Why does God do that in our lives? What's going on? Well, number one, and I took this up at uh, Arlington in the uh, last fall, there is the tremendous truth and the tremendous reality that God's dealings in our lives are for our preservation and for our stability. You know, sometimes we can ride too high. Sometimes we can really do well. We say, boy, we have arrived. And you recall Paul said, you know, I, I had all these revelations. It was wonderful. And he said, lest I should be exalted above measure. Lest I should be riding too high, there was given me a thorn in the flesh. It brought me down. It made me aware that I was dependent upon God. It hurt. I tried to get rid of it, prayed three times, and nothing happened. Apart from the fact that he understood my grace is sufficient for thee, but it was all designed to preserve him, to stabilize him. One of the purposes of the, of the gardener's dealings is not just for preservation, but it's for preparation. And I don't have the time to go into the dealings of God with Joseph and, of course, with Moses, 40 years in the palace, 40 years in the wilderness. Wasted time? Not at all. I'm convinced that God never wastes anything in his dealings with us. Nothing. But he's preparing us. He's preparing us for the future. He's preparing us that he might use us. And brothers and sisters, you might feel that you're laid aside. It could well be just the preparation time for that which is yet ahead. There was David, shepherd. Now, that's not a very high calling. Working with dumb old sheep. <laughs> oh, he was learning. He was being prepared as to what his role would be in shepherding God's flock. There's another thing. There's transformation. Transformation. And I think that we have to acknowledge that trials, trials will change us. They can make us bitter. That's one way. And I hope there's no bitter Christians here. No believer that says, boy, I've gotten the raw end of the deal and I'm, 
I'm not happy about it, and I'm, no, no. We can become bitter. Or we can accept God's dealings. Maybe not even understanding all that's going on, but we can accept it. And it'll become the greatest prod for our, our growth and our change. I'm just going to read this because my time is gone. But Johnny Erickson Tata uh, has spent 46 years in a wheelchair. I think we're well aware of that. July the 30th, 1967, she dove into the Chesapeake Bay and like that. She became a quadriplegic, paralyzed from her neck down. 46 years in a wheelchair, that is a long time. And after 10 years, okay, so she was 17 going on 18, so now she's 27 going on 28, she, she, she put down some of her, her findings as to what God had done and what God was doing. There had been the anger, the resentment, the, the discouragement, the hopelessness. But it began to change because, you see, this trial began to transform her. And I'm just going to read this and sit down. This is what she said, all things. This is from her book, When God Weeps. She said, number one, all things are working together for good, for God's glory. That doesn't mean being a, a best-selling author or speaker. simply means being like Christ. Check. Number two is what she wrote, hardships have forced me to make decisions about God, made muscular my faith. I can believe in him more now than before the wheelchair. Check. Number three, 10 years later, suffering has done a job in my character. Not so sloppy about relationships. Stick to promises and more patient, at least somewhat. People matter more than they did before. Check. Number four, being paralyzed has really made heaven come alive, not in a cop-out way, but in a way that makes me want to, be, want to live better here because more is coming there. Check. Number five, no doubt about it, my thoughts have been jerked right side up. Can't reach for the common temptations most people do. Having no hands helps with that. Check. Number six, suffering has made me a little more sensitive to others who are hurting. Couldn't have cared less about quads like me before the accident. Different story now. Check. And then she writes, God is more concerned with conforming me, conforming me to the likeness of his son than leaving me in my comfort zone. Life doesn't make sense. No, it doesn't. But behind it all is the tender hand of a God who cares with ultimate objectives that are glorious. He doesn't know a better way of doing anything. He doesn't. We're in his hand. Thank God for that. He is leading us. He is guiding us. He is blessing us. He is changing us. And I trust that this conference will change us. And even when we can't understand all of God's dealings with us, we will continue on with confidence that our God is a good God, for he is. And our God is a gracious God, and he is. And our God is a loving God, for God is love. And that we might appreciate more and more of the bounty of his hand and of his heart. Shall we pray? Father, we give thanks today for thy son. Thank thee for the opening of thy word. Pray that thou wilt bless thy people. And as we would have a time of refreshment, and then as the ministry of God continues, we pray that we might hear thy voice as we give thanks in our Savior's precious name. Amen.